0: Jennifer Frazier is author of The Bullied Brain, Heal Your Scars and Restore Your Health. She has a PhD in comparative literature and The Bullied Brain is her fourth book. She draws on medical, neuroscientific and neurobiological research to examine what happens to brains that are bullied and abused. Jennifer is an award-winning educator and works as a coach, consultant and international presenter. This podcast is a dialogue that works in the first season like a coaching session. Eric shares his childhood experiences of being abused and Jennifer discusses the implications for brain and for recovery. Our goal is to use Eric's childhood abuse like a case study as most people don't learn about their brains or about how abuse impacts their brains. The research is clear that the brain is innately wired to repair and recover when we know the harm done and the evidence-based practices to heal. This is the focus of Jennifer's book, but it comes to life in a podcast as Eric bravely walks us through the abuse done to him and his many strategies for healing his neurological scars. For all those who have suffered bullying, abuse, and trauma, join us to look at it through the lens of brain science and learn ways to repair the harm done. Welcome to the second episode of The Bully Brain. With me is my co-host, Jennifer Frazier, who has started the day with me by saying, I have something I want to ask you, but I'm not going to ask you until we start the podcast. So here I am with bated breath, wondering what she wants to ask. <laughs> okay.
1: Well, the in our, in our first podcast, we started to unpack the abuse that you suffered as a child, which as you know, is my, it's my area of research interest right now. It's what I write about. It's what I look at. I look at what the science says about childhood abuse. And I look at what how it manifests in a person's life, especially knowing that it actually does really significant harm to the brain, which is what my book is about. So in the podcast, you're doing me a great kindness really and and a favor because you're acting like a research subject for me where I get to ask you questions to find out really, I mean, it's one thing to read the science. It's another thing to be able to talk with someone and say, okay, these things happened And how did you survive? How did you cope? How did you repair your brain? How did you heal what was done on the inside and outside of yourself? That fascinates me and I think it's a very important conversation for other people. So my question to you is something you said last time and it interests me because what I see you doing and what I know from know to be true in the research is that when we're children we only know our life as a child within our family. Our life as a child within our school and our sport and our church and our neighborhood. We don't have other experiences. We're very brand new to the planet. So we don't have the wide range of adult experience and knowledge and culture and so on to be able to differentiate and make, have insights into what's going on for us. We just think it's normal. The brain normalizes. So you normalized something that really shocked me in the last podcast, you said to me, oh yeah, my parents would say to me, the usual, you know, the usual thing. They would say, I wish you were never born and I wish you were dead. And to me, that's like a dagger in the heart. I cannot imagine in a million years saying that to anyone's child, let alone my own child. And and you said it as if this is what parents do. This is how they talk. And they don't. It's really a terrible, painful,
0: soul-destroying thing that was said to you. Not sure how, you, how to respond to what you're looking for.
1: I want I want you to know that what was done to you was very, very wrong. And I want you to know it's not normal. And that really your parents failed you in that moment. And I'm curious, how, as a child, you received that, and how you managed to survive it?
0: Let me start by saying thank you, I guess. You know, I again, I'm not sure if I should be feeling anything when you say that. I, I don't mean to be offensive, but I don't feel anything when you say that. It, it just, it's, it's just, it is what it is.
1: You just answered my question. So look what you just did. You did it as a kid, and you can even do it now. You just cut the feelings completely off because it's far too destructive and far too painful, and that's a brilliant survival strategy. That is your brain going, "Uh-uh, wall just came down. I I can't hear those words. I to heard them. Me, I mean, you hear them, but they don't touch you. And that's yeah. a really interesting survival strategy that even a child's brain was able to
0: throw that wall up. But Jennifer. Say- The first time I heard it, it did hurt. I felt it. I'm pointing at my chest. I felt it like right between your pecs. And it it was like, I don't know if for, for listeners, if they've ever had really bad heartburn, where it just feels like you're, you're, you're you're the inside of your chest wall is burning from the inside out. That's what it felt like the very first time it was said. And I don't remember how old I was. You know, I, I don't remember. And I don't remember the exact words. I don't know. I do know it would have been my mom that said it, not my dad. My dad just said he never wanted kids. That was just his, you know, whatever. My mom would have been the one who would have said, you know, I wish you hadn't been born or, you know, pick a, pick a thing to just get me to go away. But yeah, I, I don't, and I don't know. I I, I think. i don't think it's something i grew up hearing all the time because when when she saw it didn't have any any it didn't bother me anymore she didn't do it it's like they stopped hitting me when it didn't hurt anymore you know it's there's there comes a certain point where when you're told you know don't you know if you cry we're going to give you something to cry about you just learn this doesn't hurt it'll be over soon and it's the same way you know It, it it's So by the time I was 13, you know, you're asking how I survived it. I don't think of it as surviving. It it just, it just is. I mean, by the time I was 12 or 13, I'd cut my parents out of my life. They didn't mean anything to me. They were just two people I had to live with. And, you know, until I could get out of the house, but there was no attachment. There was no meaning, you know, I didn't interact with them unless I absolutely had to.
1: You know, there's this brilliant neuroscientist who talks, her, her book is, it's Lisa Feldman Barrett. And she talks about in her book, how emotions are made. And she she I think it's something we should teach all children and all adults, I guess, because the brain has this capacity to create its own reality. So we have a tendency to think that the world is actually unfolding in some state of reality, But it's not. Every single one of us is constructing our own reality. So we construct our emotional world as well. And the old science believed that emotions were kind of common across humanity. She completely debunks that with a ton of science to say, no, we don't all have common emotions across cultures. We actually have very distinct emotions that are taught to us by culture. So I'm trying to impose my emotional state in a sense on your childhood, right? I'm the emotion concepts that this causes for me as as just, I guess, let's call me, let's call me, and I'm the most imperfect mother in the world. <laughs> let's just call me a healthy mother. I'm a healthy mother. I don't have bipolar, I have no need to hurt my children. I want I have no I have no impulse to hurt my children. I would call that an incredibly unhealthy human behavior that doesn't make any sense if you saw it in the if you saw it in animal populations, you would be horrified, right? It's it's unnatural. So if I don't have that impulse, I have the opposite impulse. I feel instantly protected. If I saw a child being harmed or a child being verbally abused, as you describe, I, I would have to intervene. My emotion concept says like, I go into, that has to stop. That adult needs to be removed and gotten the help that they need. That kid needs to be completely taking care of, and and nurtured back to well-being. Like, those are all my emotion concepts. So you you and I, in a sense, are having opposite experiences of what happened to you, because your emotion concepts were you, once you recognize the pain, you felt the pain, and then you had to build emotion concepts that allowed for essentially escape, like disattachment, not attachment, or unattachment, or whatever we would call that. You had to be very clear in Cutting those two people, even though they're your parents, they had to be cut out of your life for survival, let's say, or for a reality that you could actually exist in.
0: I, I find it interesting that, that, and maybe not interesting isn't the right word, but because I don't know that I agree that you would, that that you or or people would step in if they see a child, you might, you might, I mean, you're pretty strong willed, but that you, that somebody would step in if they see a child who is who is being verbally or, or physically abused or assaulted. And I, I I say that anecdotally from personal experience. When I went to Disney, the one time I went to Disney, I'll never go back. I, I can't think of a reason why I would go back. I know everybody says it's supposed to be an amazing, wonderful time. It wasn't for me. I hated every minute. When I went to Disney, the, the memory that stands out, well, there's two memories that stand out. The first memory is going through a turnstile and, you know, you've, you, so many number guests and I I cut in front of my brother. So, you know, we got something for, for so many number guests or something. And because I cut in front of my brother, I got it instead of he did. Well, my parents didn't like that. So I got punished for it. I don't remember all the details. I just remember getting punished for this thing. And then the second one was I told my mother I would go on Magic Mountain with her. We go up to the, we get to the top and I freak out and I'm like, I can't do this. And she freaks out and proceeds to hit me and berate me the entire walk down. And I don't know if you've been to Magic Mountain in Florida, but there's 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 video monitors all the way down, or from what I remember. I mean, it was many many years ago. I don't remember. I could be misremembering, but my memory is that there was there was video monitors around showing the lines and showing the ride, and I was I would appear on those monitors as my mom was berating me and, and hitting me the entire time to get out of the mountain to get off the ride and nobody spoke up or said anything so I I, I really question and maybe maybe because that was in the 80s you know and this is the 2020s things would be very different but you know I, I, I don't know
1: well you know my curse in life is I would have had to say something and I think what holds people back is all of us know that in a family like that if you speak up if you embarrass the parent, you it's going to set the kid up for a worse punishment oh, at yeah. home. Oh, once yeah. the door is closed. And this is what makes people, it, it paralyzes people. But what I, I just don't understand how we have become a society that just, you know, condones this type of thing. You know, people talk about being trauma informed and they talk about intergenerational trauma. But what they don't like to say is abuse-informed and intergenerational abuse, right? Like, do you know what happened to your mother? Like, do you know the backstory as to how she developed her mental illness? I mean, was she abused as well? My guess is she was. I I would
0: guess, but I don't care. I mean, it it doesn't change my life, and I'm going to be incredibly selfish. I don't care. I've, you know, I, I I don't remember the last time I had any feeling towards her besides contempt. I think that's really healthy. i what What worries me are
1: the people who had very abusive childhoods and they are still kind of talking about their parents in these glowing terms. That's where it really <laughs> gets like super worrisome and And that's why this is so one of the things that I want to talk to you about is exactly that, because what fascinates me in your story is how abysmal it was and how you were able to really separate out from it. Like it,
0: you didn't let it wire your brain in any way, which really interests me. And I think it did, Jennifer, because I don't, I, I have a real hard time making, let me, let me back up. I don't understand what in air quotes friendship is. I have people tell me they're my friend and I go along with it, but I don't know what it means. I have people I will do whatever I can to help, you know, because I I'm that type of per I feel I'm that type of person I identify as being that type of person that you know if you're in my life and you haven't screwed me over why shouldn't I help you I guess that's a friendship I have people I enjoy talking to but I also those same people I I almost have to be in a certain frame of mind because they'll call me and I I'll I'll avoid I'll I'll dodge their call because I just don't want to talk I don't want to listen to them I don't want to be that whatever it is they need that day and and I I, as I'm saying it out loud I realize how selfish that sounds but I don't know how else to frame it because that's how I think
1: you see that doesn't sound selfish to me at all when I listen to that I go oh that's smart I do that too that's called self-care it's called sometimes you don't have the resources for somebody else doesn't mean you're not their friend it just means you sometimes have to put yourself first if you want to be healthy. And I know you are, you have definitely set your sights on holistic health. So to make that decision that you're not 24 seven available, or you sometimes can't listen to someone else, like I'm very introverted. So my greatest enemy, the worst thing that ever happened to me is the cell phone. I'm like, why does everybody want their phone? phone with them 24 seven it's like the point of the phone is the hopeful hopeful thing that you get really like brownie points because you made a phone call but the answering machine picks up so you don't have to talk to anybody i'm like yes and it doesn't mean i don't love people i love them but i need my time i need to be alone i need to be thinking i just and i don't see it as selfish at all i yeah, see but, it as, but,
0: but see there's a difference you use the word love i don't unless you do. <laughs> I know, but that's my
1: emotion concept, right? My emotion concept is when I feel interested in people, I would do anything to help them. I have no desire to harm them. They've never betrayed me. That means I'm gonna use the emotion concept for friendship or I'm gonna use the emotion concept even for love. I'm just constructing that, right? I'm using my vocabulary. I'm I'm just making that. You and I, I would argue And you and I clearly are going to have an argument today. (laughs) I I would say we feel the same way. Like our impulse is the same towards these people in our life. Yeah. But we use different emotion concepts. Mine are maybe more flowery and just kind of out there. Yours are much more cautious and analytical because I think that makes you feel safe.
0: I'm not. uh, So, okay. So I have yet to see anything we're going to argue about. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's it. makes sense. What you're saying
1: makes sense to me. I know when I read Lisa Feldman Barrett's book, I was like, everybody needs to read this. This is so smart. And one of the, I had a moment with a friend just before I read the book. And she said to me, you know, I just, I'm so excited about this new phase in my life, this opportunity, it's just incredible. It makes me, I just am gonna start to cry talking about it. And I was like, why would you cry? how come you're not like celebrating? What do you mean cry? And, and she, you could see her visibly startled. And she said, well, I come from a family of criers. Everybody cries all the time in my family. And I was like, Whoa, that's really weird being insensitive in the moment and kind of selfish, but you know, it made my brain start going. Then when I read Lisa Feldman Barrett's book, I was like, of course you're going to cry. Cause that's learned behavior. You've learned that the emotion concept for excitement is tears. Okay, I'm going to shed tears now. You know, you and I, our emotion concept for a fabulous opportunity might be to, oh, this is like champagne moment. I'm going to celebrate. Or it I'm could gonna, be,
0: where's the other foot? When is it going to fall?
1: Yeah, that's 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 the caution piece. The my my husband came from a very critical childhood constant criticism his dad was a world war ii vat like just bad 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 constantly put down and he never lets himself be hopeful about anything he's always just if you're hopeful you get disappointed if you believe in something it'll be taken away like
0: all of those that's all learned behaviors i used to be yeah i used to be very much like that i'm more often. I think I'm more optimistic now. I I think I tend to be more, well, I definitely think more positively now. I don't know if I'm more optimistic, but I'm more positive.
1: Well, and again, what I love about that is it shows that it's choice, right? If you, and as I say to some people, you know, if I'm coaching people, I'll say you have to put in the work. And it seems to me that you work really hard at an alternative reality that you're constructing yourself. It's like, we talked about last week, last time we did our podcast. I love that we were starting to parse out kind of where's the real Eric in this abusive background. Where's the real Eric, the person that just came into the world where is that kid when we take the abuse away? And then, so we came up with the bicycle and then we had the The really interesting was the library. Yeah. The reading couldn't get enough of psychology. Like you have the type of brain that wants to figure it out, which is just interesting. Like the idea that kids are born with it, fully independent brain that's like it's so different than anyone else's it's like a a fingerprint it's that unique and I mean just like we should teach kids hey the greatest discovery in your life will be figuring out the brain that you were gifted when you were born into planet
0: earth like what an amazing thing to keep learning about imagine I I agree I think it would be wonderful Jennifer but I think I I don't think we'll ever see it or at least not in my lifetime, because, well, for people like me, when I was in school, I was probably, I I, I was probably that, I wasn't a bad student in the fact that I didn't, I didn't call, I didn't disrupt class, but I don't think I was that student that teachers get excited about, you know, because I just didn't care. I, 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 I didn't, so, you know, everything you're saying would be awesome if you could teach, but, you, but how do you do that, right? How do you, How do you put aside your ego and say, we may not know the best way for this student to learn or, hey, maybe this kid is smarter than us. You know, I know that's that's sacrilege to say. But, you know, the reality is and and I I think it's it's more recognized now because we're seeing more and more students who are jumping classes or, you know, different types of things like that. And my problem is I just didn't do I didn't want to work. You know, I didn't I didn't. i i I didn't see why i didn't see the benefit in it i mean i'm gonna graduate if i get c's and i'm gonna graduate if i get a's i don't have to do any work to get c's why am i gonna do all this extra work it didn't make sense to me so i'm trying to imagine how how teachers would teach that how teachers would approach that or how they would even identify it right or is that a product of my upbringing or was you know is it you know why stand out? You know people who stand out, danger. Will Robinson. You know it's 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 very complicated. So how do you know, how would we begin to go about that? You know some of it I think is are these are they Montessori schools or whatever where they're they're you know they're letting kids kind of shape their own way or or choose their own path. I, I think that would be really cool, but I also think it's a special type of student. I think there are going to be people out there who really need the structure, and the the, the trick is going to be understanding which is which.
1: Well, you know, neurobiologist, Dr. Uh, John Medina, he says that the best teacher is a teacher who has theory of mind.
0: And this is why you told me I should never be a teacher.
1: (laughs) That was a really nice thing that I said. Wow. Of course, you would be a great teacher because you actually are just talking right now about A teacher's conundrum who's actually thinking about the student and not their own ego right so that is theory of mind so theory of mind is it's really profound empathy so you look at every single student as an individual with a unique brain which is what they are plus they're being wired in different environments that you can't necessarily know you don't know what the home life is like you can make some guesses but you don't really know so imagine how complex that is well, the greatest teacher tries to get, walk in the shoes of the student. So it's like what we talked about in the last podcast. I was so sad to hear that the librarian didn't take this opportunity to say to you, hey, why don't, we, why don't we see if there's other kids really interested in psychology? Maybe we could have a psychology club. You clearly are so knowledgeable. Maybe you'd like to have a discussion. Maybe once a week, you and I could talk psychology. I could probably learn a lot from you. Like, where was that? That's good teaching. You know, so, I mean, there's, and there's, I wouldn't
0: be a good teacher.
1: <laughs> well, it takes, I mean, it's a really hard job. I mean, teachers really are quite special people. I mean, I I've taught for 20 years. I've seen all kinds of different teachers and the vast majority are just amazing. They would do anything for their students and they try so hard. Of course, there's some people that have got their own psychological issues and troubles and you know, they have never sorted them out or done the work or whatever to, to deal with it. So they, they bring something very negative into their teaching. But the majority are just, you know, they're all trying to theory of mind. And we're learning a lot about education. Like, I've done a bunch of courses, actually, because I found the neuroscience piece on zero to five. So fascinating. And I thought, everybody needs to know this. Like, people need to know about children's developing brains. And you know what's the best thing, zero to five? And there's lots of people and programs doing this. I'm, I'm just repeating what the scientists say and the educational PhDs, I'm just repeating. But what they know is the best thing in the world for kids is play. Zero to five, you just create opportunities for them to discover. There's the water table. You might feel an impulse to go and figure that out today or tomorrow. There, Here's the planting station. You can plant things and learn about the soil. Over here is the book corner. If you feel like reading psychology, you were probably there in the book corner, reading psychology of zero to five. You know, there's all, oh, maybe you wanna do kinesthetic things. You wanna like run around and jump and climb. I mean, this is what children need. And then as they get older, obviously you create more sophisticated opportunities for them to learn and play, you know? The kids that are drawn to chemistry, oh boy, create, you know, give them, put them in a lab, let them learn. Kids that are fascinated by biology or mathematics or, or maybe multiple things, the Renaissance kids that want to move from station to station. Like, you know, that's really what the future of education should be. It shouldn't be kids sitting in desks, you know, all having to do the same thing. That doesn't make sense. If we all have unique brains, we really need to create opportunities to kind of get the brain of, these individuals really excited and ready to pursue what they're going to pursue.
0: You know, it sounds like you're, you're asking schools to place as much emphasis on, you know, academics from the eyes of the, of the student as they do on sports.
1: Yeah. Well, and you know, one of the things that drives me crazy is we understand that if, if a child is going to learn something, they're going to master football they have to daily practice. If they're gonna master another language, let's so say Spanish or French, they're gonna have to daily practice. You don't learn it in a workshop. You don't learn it at assembly. When somebody gets up you know, and just goes blah, blah for half an hour, nobody learns. Brains don't learn that way. Brains learn, and we know it from sports, and we know it from arts, like music. We know it from language and math. Brains learn by repetition at timed intervals. So if we wanna teach kids and adults not to be abusive, we have to teach them daily at timed intervals. This is how you don't hurt people over and over and over again until their brain comes up. You know, Your parents, their emotion concept relationship to the world and even their own children was, I must do damage. I feel violence. I feel aggression. I'm gonna lash out at someone smaller and vulnerable and dependent on me. That's what I feel about the world. And then once they couldn't get whatever feedback they needed from that, they didn't, they, their emotion concept just flattened, right? It didn't have any meaning. And so they probably had to come up with something new who knows what they came up with after, but you'd have, those people need to be trained. Every single time they feel the impulse to trot out the emotion concept of hurting somebody else, you have to shut them down.
0: And that's until what you- the Navy did for me. Every time, you know, Maybe not every time, but enough times that I'm like, okay, this sucks.
1: So, you yourself behaved in aggressive ways that was hurtful to people you oh either knew or not, and maybe <laughs>
0: said, no, can't do that. Not quite that black and white, but yes, there were incidents that I'm not going to go into or confess to on a podcast because I don't know statute of limitations. But I've done things that by any reasonable person would would be unacceptable involving weapons. So I was never, and I'm pausing because I want to make sure I say it the right way. There were no legal ramifications holding me accountable. There was a lot of what, a lot of my change was prompted. I wish I could say guilt, but the reality is it was fear of getting caught and losing my freedom which is a recurring theme for me, you know, I value my freedom over all else. I mean, if you want to motivate me, it's find a way to get me more time, find a way to get me more freedom and control over my own life, which is going to be pretty damn hard to do at this point because I've, I've become a master of it. But in the Navy, it was, I did have a lot of outbursts. I did have, especially on my first couple commands, I didn't know how to interact with people. You know, I, I told, I've, I, part of the diagnosis of, of anti-personality disorder, but I was a pathological liar, you know, from, from as early as I can remember till probably my second boat, you know, my second tour of duty where I would just, I couldn't even tell you why I was lying. It was just easier. Can I tell you? That's why we're here. That's why we're here.
1: See, what is so interesting to me is you're describing, in a sense, narcissism. So one of my big questions all the time in my research and my work is, people wanna talk downstream. So they wanna talk about, oh, I have antipersonality disorder. The way my brain works is, I wanna talk upstream. I'm really interested in when that began and how it started and why it was useful. Because if you go backwards that way, you can always find, almost always, You can find the brain doing something smart to protect you. And you've told me enough, like even in the last podcast, you shared that you had to lie all the time to survive. Telling your parents the truth or having authentic connection in any way, shape or form with them was was life-threatening, basically. Literally life-threatening, like going to the hospital repeated times because you are broken and bruised and damaged. Like your life was on the line. And so your brain, of course, it was lying. It was, it was, it was fabricating falsehood because that's the type of people you were dealing with two intraspecies predators. Well, you don't tell predators the truth, right? Truth makes you vulnerable. And so, like, I just love this, like, you've got this powerhouse brain trying to figure stuff out even as a kid, but you're smart enough to know, your brain knows truth is dangerous. Well, of course you take all those wiring lessons. You take all of that brain shaping, sculpting material. It's not like you get away from the interspecies predator and you suddenly are like, oh, these people are my friends and now I'm a mindfulness expert and I'm not gonna have any outbursts and I'm not gonna be aggressive and I'm not gonna do risk taking dangerous things. Of course you're gonna, you have to continue that pattern Because you believe it's reality but what this is the key thing is some people i call them writers of culture so i would argue you're a writer of culture most people are readers of culture they they just become however the world shaped them and this is what my first book was about and i use literature to make the argument and i'll tell you i want to tell you what the tipping point thing was that i found that changed some people into writers of culture, like original thinkers, like revolutionaries, rebels, people that say, this can't be reality. It's not the reality I want. I'm going to create something different. And what I found, so in the literature, what I talked about and discovered and worked on and so on, and it was all about rite of passage. So you, Eric, the the abused child, up until you went to the Navy, That the Navy for you, what you're describing to me is what I would call or what anthropologists would call the liminal phase. So you were born Eric, the child that got abused by these intraspecies predators up until you got away from them. You were born that person, but then you went through, and this is a ritual initiation ceremony that you undertook in some psychological way yourself. You started through a liminal phase where you were like, whoa, I don't want to be like them, but I need to learn to be someone else. I have to die as the Eric that they created and be reborn. And oftentimes in in ritual ceremonies, of course, in in tribes and so on, back in the day, even in church processes, people would take a a new name on and it becomes very symbolic to them, or they'll get a tattoo or they'll get a piercing. Something will show that they are the new person. They've been reborn. Most people are way too afraid to die and go through the liminal phase of not knowing who you are. They're terrified. So obviously you've have the courage instilled within you in some way to have been able to go through that phase and maybe you are still constructing the new era I think you would say you are in on certain levels you're constructing who you would have been if it, if you hadn't had this construction in the past but what I found and this is my question to you what I found in that in that book and what I wrote about was that these people needed a mentor they had to have the right mentor that helped them and I'm wondering, like. Did, was there someone in the Navy that said to you, ah, you can't do this. You still belong, but I don't like you're running the risk of losing your freedom or like, did you have a mentor?
0: Yeah, I think, I think there were a couple people throughout my career in the military that I, that I looked up to, you know, people I worked for, but there were also people that I worked for that I just had no respect for. And, and I didn't, I didn't know how to. And I would argue I probably still don't. I didn't know how to just go along and and just you know you know position. They're in a position of positional authority. You have to respect the, the the position even if you don't respect the person. I I, I don't think I've ever been a, very good at that. But yeah, there have been a couple. There have been people through the years that that I've looked at and I guess you could call them mentors. You know, and and there was one that I I, I had used to consider a mentor. Up until he, I'm I'm saying this because I think it's relevant to what you just shared. But he, you know, up until he said, well, you know, he he made the comment to me about how I how he was a father figure to me, and I'm like, no, dude, you are the farthest thing from a father figure for me. And at that point, he I cut him out of my life because I just I'm just like, you really obviously don't know me, so I'm not mm-hmm. wasting any more time with you, mm-hmm. and I never look back. But yeah, I've had mentors.
1: See, okay, my emotion concept for that is I, and I could be, maybe I'm off on this, but that makes me feel, my emotion concept that I feel that gets constructed by that story is sadness. Because I feel like you cut him out of your life because of your father in the past, not because of who he was in your present. It was so terrifying basically to you to even hear the word or think that you might be getting drawn into a similar but i didn't th- I,
0: I don't think i was getting drawn in cuz that's not how i perceived him he he wasn't that much older than i was i mean he was you know maybe 5 10 in 10 years that'd be like me calling you a mother figure Yeah, no it's not going to happen and i you know he was further along in his in the career that i at the time i was in financial services he was further along and and very successful in that career I was looking at that as a model for how I could be more successful. That is not parenthood to me. That is a mentor for how to be more successful at work. Yeah, that's true. But I I think it was his own ego, and that that told me a lot about him at that point. And I'm just like, you know, that is this is not somebody I want to mirror. This is not somebody that I want to try to be more like.
1: Well, and also it does carry that, as you've said, freedom is so important, it carries an obligation almost, it's like we're we're father and son, it's like, you know, I, I didn't, I, I thought it was, you know, it's, this is a really good example of how, so you describe the story, I march out my emotion concept, but it's because I've created a mythic event in your life that didn't actually happen. I was seeing like the Gandalf figure with his long beard and this, and his walking stick and his robe and you, the acolyte, the young disciple learning and then rejecting the father. You know, I made that all up myself in my brain and it wasn't true. And the second, so this is in the literature, they call this perspective taking. So my empathy was to say, oh, Eric, I know what it's like to reject a father figure. That's heartbreaking. So I'm going to trot out the emotion concept sadness. I feel sad about this. And you're like, no, no, you're misreading. What actually happened, and you gave me a new perspective. So instead of just letting my empathic imagination go crazy, you set me straight on. Okay, no, you're missing key points here, and now our empathy is back in alignment. I can understand where you're coming from, and I'm like, ew, I agree with you. Well, what is? Ooh, bad ego. <laughs>
0: you know, I'm like back on side. And I you mean, know what's that- so cool about this, Jennifer, is we can we're showing. I I hope we're showing listeners how they can have honest conversations without making it without, without feeling fake, you know, like, like it's okay to check for understanding and be wrong. It doesn't mean like, I don't hate you all of a sudden, like, Oh my God, Jennifer, what the hell's wrong with you? Why were you thinking that? Really? I mean, no, I know. It's like, think of all the marriages we could (laughs) say.
1: I mean, haven't we all been in the marital conversation where you just, you just, Completely misread what the other person is feeling or thinking. I mean, it's humans. That's what we do. We we have the, are this. You know, one of the things I learned from a psychologist who's absolutely brilliant and I adore. Her name is Dr. Leanne Gray. She's in California. She's taught me so much. But she, I took act, an actual course with her one on one, where she taught me over the course of ten sessions, empathic listening. And it was such an eye-opening course for me because what I discovered about myself is that I'm a terrible listener. When I'm listening to somebody else, and I think other people do this, and that's why it's hopefully useful. What I learned was when I'm listening to somebody, I'm actually not really listening. I'm busy constructing my own response. Or I'm doing what you just witnessed me do. I'm I'm myth-making my own version of events. And this is where misunderstanding happens. So in empathic listening, and you and I could do this as an exercise, which might be kind of fun in one of the podcasts, we could, we could do a session where we do it this way or part of it. So let's pretend we're doing empathic listening. You would speak first. You would talk for maybe a minute or so. And my only job, I'm not allowed to say anything. I'm not allowed to interject or have a facial expression or make any vocalization I can't agree or disagree, I can't make a joke, nothing. All I can do is listen. Once you stop, you pause after a minute or so, because it can't go on too long, because my job then is to repeat back what you said. So when you're doing empathic listening, you actually are completely listening, because you know that your task is to repeat back with as much accuracy as possible what the person said. Once I've done that, you go on for the next minute. And this goes on until you're finished and you say to me, I feel heard. And then it's my turn. Well, can you imagine the different relationships we'd have with people if we actually didn't interrupt them, if we didn't have emotional reactions and make a joke or cut them off or tell them our thought or, or tell them they're wrong? You know, we actually j- just listened until they said the whole thing. And then it was our turn, reciprocity, and they repeated us back so that you have a much richer like especially when it's high stakes you know it could be high stakes at work where somebody really needs to explain to you why they think it's a bad decision what the firm is about to do imagine teenager and parent where the parent doesn't want to give the kid the car keys and or wants to set a curfew and the, the child is furious and the two of them get to say why why the child is furious and why the parent is like being overprotective or being very reasonably protective like it just would it's just a very
0: great Tool for all of us to have. What came to mind when you were describing it was in the it, what we called it in the submarine repeat pack. It is certainly I don't think was meant to be empath- you know, empathic listening, but we would be required to every anytime somebody said something and they, again, high consequence environment. So, anytime somebody said something, you would repeat it back to them verbatim. Well, when you do that for so many years. It becomes second nature, like you don't even speaking for myself, you don't even know I almost don't even have to really listen anymore, like I can just you know turn it on to where I can just regurgitate, but that defeats the purpose of what I hear what I feel like you're describing,
1: well, okay, so what you just Yes, it's different because yours is about, it's not about listening to how someone thinks. It's not about listening to how someone feels. It's not about listening to what they intend. Those are the big empathy things. Empathy is wired into the baby's brain so it survives. A kid that's born in 40 minutes to an hour after birth will start imitating facial expressions of the powerful people in the room, the parents, the doctor, because our brain's if we don't we have the longest childhood of any creature on the planet if we don't know what the powerful people are feeling thinking and intending we're doomed especially if they're abusive so like we just discussed with you you very quickly learned thinking feeling and intending one of the best strategies is deception to survive and thus you became very adept at deception which became a big hassle in later life because it's actually not a great way No, it's a
0: pain in the ass it's so freaking hard to keep everything straight
1: Oh, it is, but it's also like it makes makes such sense. And I mean, narcissists become pathological liars, right? And narcissists are frequently in the literature described. I think it's very rare. I mean, they come from what's called unhappy childhoods. It's you don't you don't come by narcissism as a sort of a, a smart way to be in the world. It's usually grounded in child abuse of some form. And it's a survival strategy. But what you just said is so interesting to me, not because it was good about empathic listening, and as you identified, that's different than empathic listening, but you just made my point about the brain. The brain learns by repetition at timed intervals. You became so adept at repeat back that it became second nature to you. Same thing with your parents and this is what drives me nuts is that we allow these people to create abuse as their second nature. They do it so often, so frequently every single day that it becomes the default neural network in their brain. They don't know how to be nurturing, kind, supportive, gentle, empathic. It's all missing in their brain because they don't fire up those neural networks. Their only neural networks that they go to are destruction, harm, hurt, etc. And if you do that every day, those are the neural networks that take over. The brain, as the neuroscientists say, I love this phrase. It's such a good one to remember. The brain has limited cortical real estate. The brain brain has
0: limited cortical
1: cortical real
0: real estate.
1: In other words, if you are firing up the bullying
0: neural network in your brain, you don't have room for the empathy neural network in your brain. Before, so can we just take a minute and explain what a neural network is? Yeah, neural
1: network is just a phrase. So basically, I mean, for a lay person like me, I'm not a neuroscientist. It's a great way to describe, you know, the way I think of it almost as like a tree. Because neurons and and neuroscientists talk about the brain as if it's a tree all the time. Because neurons are brain cells. They look like trees. They have like root-like things that go down called axons. And they have dendrites that go up that is the Greek word for branch-like. So a a neuron, a brain cell, and you have 86 billion to 100 billion trees in your brain, but you only have a limited amount of ground for them. So if you have a whole bunch of neural networks that are dedicated to hurting people and aggression and violence, they don't leave space for gentleness, kindness and empathy. That's why we have to practice the things that we want kids to, to learn, We want kids to learn that aggression and bullying it might be a survival strategy at home. It's not going to fly in school in the workplace. So we need to teach them not to not to default second nature to that. And if we let them just go ahead and bully, 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 we know that we're setting them on the path to criminality in later life in many cases why don't we stop it? Like we could. So, I mean, going back to what should school be like, if I was in charge of school, I would spend a ton of time. I'd let kids have a lot more choice around their academics and what they want to pursue. And I would spend a ton of time on social emotional learning and becoming absolute masters of your conduct and your brain and brain health. Cause it's the, it's the command center. It's the captain of the ship is the brain. And we don't spend any time teaching the captain how to be really, really a great
0: captain. So so to, to wind down this episode, is there, let me rephrase, is there one thing our listeners could start doing to rebuild or create new neural networks? Absolutely. One of the things they could do is to create
1: a, a bit of space between stimulus and response. Okay. So the stimulus is, well, let's use the example we used before with my friend. Stimulus is an exciting opportunity opens up that she's able to pursue. Let's say she lands the new job. That's her dream job. I I'm going to say to her, okay, you just had this incredible, fabulous thing happen to you. And she starts to cry. I say to her, your stimulus, this fabulous opportunity, create some space. What emotion concept are you going to bring forward in this moment? So that's a very benign positive one. Let's use it for aggressive behavior or let's use it for lying. You are confronted with an authority leader who reminds you of really bad parenting style. And you've got a choice in that moment. You said it yourself. You said, I can maybe not respect that human being, but I must respect their office i have to respect the position of authority that they're in that's how you do things in the navy it's how you it's how it's it's supposed to do things how you're supposed to do things and it's going to be safest and smartest for you to do that now in childhood deception was the smart way to survive that's not a good emotion reaction to this stimulus anymore so you have to rethink and it's hard work but it does lay down new, new neural networks in that moment that you pause you're creating a different reality for yourself So your default reality is lies. Keep me safe. Your, your present day reality is I need to respect and I need to tell the truth. I need to marshal the, if you can call it an emotion concept, enough trust, let's say enough, a belief in the system that I'm going to take the risk of telling the truth, you know, that that's creating that space so that you're not just doing what your brain was wired, wired with in childhood, I mean it's the great journey we're all on right? We get wired in childhood or by school or by sports or by whatever happens to us. And then the you know it's like a life unexamined is not a life worth living. I'm I just butchered that quote. It's a famous quote. It's something like anyway, it's a famous quote and I just ruined it for everybody. Sorry everyone, but it's kind of the gist of it being the great journey of life is is understanding selfhood and one's role in this incredible universe and becoming authentic to ourself not just scripted by other people especially when we don't
0: like them very much and and with everything you just said there jennifer i think i think everybody can apply it even if they didn't have an in you know big t traumatic experience childhood or, or what have you i think in every relationship marriage friends whatever you want to call it there's going to be a time where somebody's going to say something and your first reaction is going to be to a white lie and i think that would be the perfect time to introduce that pause that white space between the stimulus whatever is prompting you to make that quick white lie and then enact a response where maybe you tell the truth but because of that pause you, you can find a way to say that truth in a gentler way, or you have time to realize I don't need to be so defensive and then just build that in. And that would start rewiring your, it'll be really hard at first, but the more you do, or or maybe you're a person that says yes all the time. And with, with dire consequences, because now you're just so, you, you just never have time for yourself. Insert that white space between The stimulus, which is somebody asking you for a demand on your time, or maybe that's not how you're thinking about it. Maybe they're asking you for a favor or whatever. Again, I got to be careful about my words, you know, my reality. Maybe they're asking you to do something for them because they know you really enjoy doing things for people. And you insert that pause and give yourself enough time to really consider not the question of can I help this person or not, but rather... Is is there enough available bandwidth time or whatever? And and Jennifer, you can tell me if I'm framing it correctly to really help this person in the way that they deserve. You know, and that's giving you permission to say no, because if you say yes, you're not really helping them in the way that they deserve. Does, Does that make sense? Am I processing everything you've said?
1: Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I would just add one thing where, as we've talked about in this episode, it's it's okay to say no just cause for yourself. you know you you clearly want to help. like that's your your default is when people need you, you show up and you feel that that's a very natural deep impulse. I think this is another moment where we're finding more pieces of the true, Eric. <laughs> We like to help people. So the way you framed it is kind of adorable because I would have just been like, Oh God. Yeah. Don't always say yes. Create some space so you can say no, you know, take care of yourself for once, but you didn't frame it that way. You framed it as maybe it's even more helpful to the person. If I give them this little bit of space, you know, like you still want to help them. So I just think it's, that gave me insight into the true Eric and, you know, I think that's awesome I wish I was more that way but I think sometimes I just need to say no for to save myself and that's okay too It depends on what you're creating but yes this whole I mean this is a deep mindfulness practice that I'd love to talk about next next episode let's start with talking about how creating space between stimulus and response is a a, a, pure, a key component of mindfulness and that's another amazing way that people can change neural networks to to have more, thoughtfulness or calm or it's actually a hugely healthy thing it's a and we'll t- we can talk next time too about how choosing the mindful neural network really lowers your stress levels in ways that can really protect your brain and body from negative stress so it's a great let's let's talk more about that next time
0: we'll do this as always jennifer this has been a lot of fun i i really do enjoy these i i want you end the end it on a note that maybe I don't have to say, but we are not therapists. We are not mental health professionals. If any of this is bringing out things that you feel you need to process, I really encourage you to find a mental health professional that you know that you that you can trust. You know, BetterHelp online is a great online resource, but you know, if you if you do better in person, please find somebody. Don't be like Eric, who took you know 40 plus years you know to actually sit down with somebody. And and I will tell you. As Jennifer said, there's a difference between a coach and a therapist. And I want to do another. I want I want to make sure, you Jennifer, if you're okay with it, one of these episodes, we, we've spent some time on the difference between a coach and a therapist. Because what right. you and I are talking about and what we're doing now is not therapy. This is, although enjoyable, it's not going to, if I hadn't been working with a therapist, this could do more harm than good. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, let's have a talk about therapy. I'd love to talk about it because I, I've seen therapists,
1: I've seen psychologists and psychiatrists, and I would love to talk about that and that kind of a dynamic. And I almost wish I want to flip that and say, like, I cannot tell you how much it helped me. And I, I love the therapeutic process and I know it's so valuable, but I also wish I'd had a coach back in the day. And I have both. I I'm
0: I'm working yeah. with both a coach and a therapist right now. So I have which, both.
1: Which is awesome. And I think, I don't think talking about coaching is necessarily, I, I think where we have to be careful, and you said it already, is the idea, if you trigger people to, to, they start to have, you know, it brings up their trauma, then yeah, you want them in that sacred space with a professional, totally. But I also think listening to people talk about coaching or the great psychological journey we're on, or that, that can also open doors and be kind of invigorating and exciting for, for listeners. I mean, I hope so. It would be great if people shared some feedback, like, and all, I would love to hear too, what people, you know, in this type of a discussion, which is kind of unusual, what they would want to hear more of, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, yes, definitely. Let's talk about psychology and coaching. And I'm I'm desperate to share my stories of uh, psychology and psychiatry with you now, because there's some really interesting things I learned about it. So yeah, that'll be a fun conversation. We were supposed to talk about Stockholm syndrome today and we didn't even mention it. <laughs> there's just so much to talk about when you're talking about the brain.
0: And, and then, you know, it, it just, it goes back to the idea of brain health versus mental health, right? Because the idea of neural, and I don't want to go down another rabbit hole, so I'm, I'm just going to finish on this thought and we'll, we'll pick it up again. But the idea of a neural network, that has nothing to do with mental health and everything to do with brain health. You're not a, diag- you, you don't get a diagnosis that your neural network is broken or you, you don't have the correct neural networks. But the reality is some of these, like my diagnosis, which, you know, it, it's useful. It, it doesn't, it, it's not who I am. I don't identify as it. But mostly because I came into it so late in life, I wish I had known the tools when I was younger. I think my life could have been a lot easier. But a lot of it is because what you said about neural networks. I have I have made I have done a ton of freaking work to not be the man I was in my twenties. You know, and that is, you know, to use the language you've given me, it's it's creating new neural networks.
1: Exactly.
0: Well, thank you, Jennifer, for another great episode.
1: Thank you so much for chatting with me about this. I love talking about the brain.
0: Thank you for listening to The Bullied Brain. As a reminder, neither Jennifer nor I are licensed clinical physicians, psychologists, or mental health professionals. Everything we are talking about during this podcast is anecdotal as it relates to me, Eric Jorgensen. If you are looking for help or you would like to seek answers to your own questions, we encourage you to seek out a mental health professional in your area. Please do not try to do or overcome any trauma on your own. Thanks for listening.